I have mentioned before that meditation has many methods but only two directions calm and insight and to make it very simple calm comes when one can stay on the meditation subject and insight comes when one recognizes for instance the impermanence of the breath and all that infers about the rest of oneself insight comes and when sees and labels the thoughts and insight comes from contemplation so we're going to do some contemplation now which is different from meditation meditation can bring either calm or insight contemplation is only directed towards insight insight is the goal of meditation calm is the means there's no way to get insight without calm a mind which flits from one subject to the next will never gain insight it has to be solid and collected it has to be rock-like and incisive so calm is a means insight is a goal and since both are not immediate or easy we have to practice on both levels and as I've explained just now during meditation we have both opportunities now in contemplation it's only insight we're going to do a contemplation which is called the five daily recollections and they are called that because the Buddha recommended that every person recollects these five facts every single day they are laws of nature all five and all of us are subject to them most of us think that when they happen they're a tragedy they're nothing of the sort they're laws of nature and if we become acquainted with them as a law of nature and have that inner connection to these facts then we will never think of them as tragedies again on the contrary we'll be released and relieved from their oppressive future happening we're oppressed by the fact that they may happen once we accept them that oppression is gone that's why it's necessary to recollect them every day all of this is necessary to do every day to some extent if we remain within only the worldly aspects of life day in and day out it's very difficult to find the inner connection to the spiritual life I will say the recollection each one I'd like you to repeat it after me 
which will help to remember it to some extent. And then I will say something about it to help with the contemplation. Contemplation differs from meditation in so far that it takes a subject, a subject which is universally true and needs to be related to one's own individual life. The universality of the law of nature related to the individuality of each person. Contemplation remains on that one subject and becomes aware of one's own reaction to that particular subject. Maybe one thinks it's not true. Well, one can forget about it. Or one thinks it is true, but it's true for other people. Well, one can forget about it again. Or one thinks it's true, but it doesn't matter. Well, one can again forget about it. Or maybe it's true and sheds a new light on one's own relationship to daily living to one's own priorities, to the way one deals with the things that happen in one's life. If that is so, then the contemplation has been what one could term successful because one has seen the same old thing. We all know those five daily recollections. They're nothing new. We've known them, we've experienced them, but we've seen the same old thing in a new light. And that's what the teaching of the Buddha tries to do. To see everything that we know anyway, but in a totally different way. So that we have a different reaction and connection to it all. I think you're all familiar with the word karma. I don't think I need to uh, describe it in any way. It's... The only thing that is done wrongly in the West with the word karma is the fact that it's used for the action and the result. Technically, that's incorrect. Karma is the intention and the result is vipaka. But since the word karma has already become part of the um, usage in the English language, we'll use it in just that way. We'll use it in that way that it is the action and the result. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. Okay, now you look at that and see whether it's a true statement. 
And if you think it's a true statement, have you actually noticed it in yourself? And if you have noticed it, what sort of reaction have you? One of dislike, rejection, trying to forget it, trying to counteract it, thinking that it's something which is unpleasant? Or have you seen it as the underlying reality of everything that has life in it? I'm of the nature to be disease. I have not got beyond disease. Again, it's necessary to inquire whether this is a true statement. <coughs> have we had disease? unpleasantness in the body, major or minor. Is it with us now? Can we expect it again? And if so, what does that tell us about our presumed ownership of this body?
I am of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Here we don't need to inquire whether this is true. But what we do need to inquire is whether we take it into consideration in daily living and whether we are ready for it. And if not, why not? that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we need to inquire again whether this is true of the past, whether people, things, experiences, feelings, situations, that have been dear and delightful have changed or completely vanished. And if it's true of that which has been in the past, what about that which we hold dear now? Are we afraid that it will change and vanish? Or can we understand 
that this is a law of nature. I am the owner of my karma. Now this needs to be reflected upon in this way. Do we actually take full responsibility for everything that's happening to us? Or are we prone to blame outside circumstances? Can we accept being the owner of our intentional thoughts, speech, and action, namely the results? I inherit my karma. Here we need to reflect that if we would like to make a valuable inheritance, we have to be the instigators of it. We are the ones that inherit whatever it is that we have put into motion.
I am born of my karma. This means that we can reflect in this way that wherever we find ourselves in this life is due to karmic circumstance. There's nobody to blame. The situation we're in and we're born every morning again is exactly the situation we have made ourselves. I am related to my karma. Here we need to think in such a way. This is the closest relationship that we can possibly have because we can also say, I am my karma. And if we don't come to terms with cause and effect, which karma means, then we will always be surprised and often unpleasantly surprised. Whatever karma I shall do, whether good or evil, that I will inherit. That points to our moment-to-moment experiences in life. Whatever causes we put into motion, Those are the effects that we will experience. If we like the effects to be valuable, beautiful, 
joyful and peaceful inheritance, we have to put the causes for that into motion. I'd like to briefly recapitulate what I've already said to make the connection between that and what we're doing quite clear. We're using a discourse of the Buddha as a sort of scaffold. It's a discourse which is called All the Paints. Now, obviously, a taint is something which is impure. The whole of humanity is beset with those impurities. And if we can find them within ourselves, we will know, without a shadow of a doubt, that everybody has them. They're no different from everybody else. And once we know that everybody has them, hopefully stop being surprised at what humanity does and how life goes on. And having stopped being surprised, we might make up our minds to change ourselves. It's the only part of the world that we can change. But with that part of the world being changed, we're changing the world. Every part that is changed changes the world. Now the impurities, which we have to repeat them, are based upon the first one, which is called a taint of the desire to be, or the taint of being doesn't mean that being is attained, but it's the desire to be somebody. The desire to have importance, the desire to have a place which is solid, unchangeable. And on that, because of that, we have the 
rather than to gratification, because we don't know any other gratification. There is only that, as far as we know until now. If there is some other gratification, we may not have experienced it, so we're looking for that one. And that also makes it so difficult to become concentrated in meditation because the mind wants to think in order to gratify its desire, desire to be. We only have that possibility to support this desire, this illusion that we are somebody. If we don't think, nobody can tell us at that time, while we're not thinking, that we're really somebody. So we keep on thinking. Even though we don't want to, we still do it, because we haven't seen that dichotomy yet. The minute we would stop thinking completely, we don't have the support system to be somebody, but we get in touch with an inner reality. This desire, sensual gratification and the desire to be based upon the ignorance or the igno ignoring of the utter reality. These are called the three things. Desire for sensual gratification, desire to be somebody based upon our ignorance, ignoring. Not that we're ignorant, we're ignoring. We're ignoring a much deeper reality and absolute truth. Now the Buddha gave very exact instructions how we can get rid of these things. And as I've said already, the first one is insight, and obviously also the most important one. But it's all based on purification. The whole aspect of the spiritual path, of meditation, of anything which goes beyond sensual gratification is based upon individual purification. Now that individual purification takes place in heart and mind. That's the only two places we've got. In Pali, in the Buddhist language, it's all one place. It's called citta and it contains both heart and mind. But because we're more used to using these two differences, mind for thinking, heart for feeling, will do it like that. Now that's where purification takes place. Now I've already mentioned that one moment of concentration in meditation is one moment of purification. If we're concentrated on meditation subject, we can't think negatively, we can't feel negatively were concentrated. And if it's one second only, it's certainly one second more that we would not be having otherwise. So 
So whether we now get up and think, oh, I had a terrible meditation, or I had a good meditation, or I'll never learn it, or whatever we're thinking, one second of concentration is one second of purification. Obviously, if there are pains which make our lives difficult, and these are the underlying pains, we have not done nothing about them. We haven't done anything particularly bad or awful to have them. This is what humanity has within. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here as human beings. So these pains can only have one antidote, and that is purifying. So the other purification, which I've already mentioned to you, is the mindfulness outside of meditation, the bare attention to what the body is doing. Again, when that is happening, there's no way that we can think or feel negatively. If I know that I'm stepping, if I know I'm pushing the handle of the door down, if I know I'm sitting down, if I know I'm getting up, there's nothing else I can put in my mind at that time. Unfortunately, our mind is like a magician, and it's sometimes called that in the Buddhist terminology. And he said that we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Luckily, we don't usually have that many. But we have enough to make life difficult. So if we can stick to the bare attention to what we're doing, because there are no problems to be solved at the moment, the problems which you brought with you, they usually sort of peter out while you're here and then reappear in full size as you go home. So don't try to solve them right now. If the meditation works well, they can be solved much easier. So all we can do, really, with our time, is to try to use it in the best possible way to purify heart and mind so that the negativities which are so predominant in human thinking and feeling get a chance to recede into the background. Mind you, they're not going to be uprooted. That takes more. But when they recede into the background, at least we have a little bit peace from them. They're not overwhelming us. And as we have a bit of peace from them and not being overwhelmed by them, we have a chance to meditate to the point where we get in touch with a totally different level of consciousness. So the concentration in meditation and the mindfulness of the body outside of meditation are two aspects of purification. Mm. The other one which I would like to describe at this point is directly connected to our labeling. Now I've asked you to label the distracting thoughts. If you have many, you won't be able to label all of them. That's fine as many as possible. 
If they do not distract you, but you have the feeling as if you are thinking and watching the breath at the same time, don't label them. That's neighborhood concentration. And if you have meditated for a long time, you should have that. It's Upachara Samadhi, neighborhood concentration. It doesn't have an intrinsic value in itself, but with a little more practice, a little more determination, it leads to proper concentration. So if you have the feeling as if you were thinking in the background and watching the breath in the foreground, don't label. Just have a little more determination to really let the mind fall into the breath. But if you're properly thinking and not watching the breath, and after a few moments have the uh, realization, hey, I'm thinking, I thought I was watching the breath, but I'm not, that's the kind of thought that needs labeling. This is a kind of practice which is extremely helpful in daily life. In fact, it's called the four supreme efforts, the padanas in Pali. And they are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So again, you can see that they're very important. Of course, they are only factors of enlightenment when they're perfected, naturally. And that we don't perfect them just yet. That's also natural, but we can practice them. Practice makes perfect. These four supreme efforts sound quite simple. When you start using them, you'll find that they're not as simple as they sound. But when you're successful with them, you will find that they are such a relief and such a relief that you wonder why you haven't always done it. One wonders why humanity as a whole doesn't do it. It goes like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Why doesn't everybody do it? Well, the first reason why everybody isn't doing it is because everybody's believing what they're thinking. This is the first benefit for a meditator, that we no longer believe what we're thinking. Because obviously we'd like to become concentrated, totally peaceful, Let's get in touch with this inner reality, realize that there's a beautiful uh, inner life which we can touch upon if we're not thinking. And what are we doing? We're thinking about next week or day before yesterday or lunch or whatever it is. So we get a very clear picture of the fact that we do not have to believe our thoughts that they're just thoughts. And that is the first step into being able to change one's thoughts at will. As long as we believe them, why should we change them? 
we think they're the truth. The more negative they are, the more unbelievable they are. They only make us and others unhappy. What for? The first directive of the Buddha is not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Well, that takes a fair bit of mindfulness. And it's the third foundation of mindfulness. The first one is the body, which I've already explained. This is the third one. To realize that an unwholesome thought is in the offing, is possible, if one watches oneself carefully. It sends ahead messengers of unpleasantness, messengers of unpleasant feelings, heaviness, dullness, fogginess, distraughtness, all sorts of unpleasant feelings. And because these unpleasant feelings are there, we very often then try to find a cause for them. It must be what somebody said or did or what we didn't get or what we got. And there we are with an unwholesome thought. If we watch those feelings which are the messengers which come ahead of the thought process, sometimes it just feels as if there is a like as if there is a depression coming, not a full-blown depression, but something which is depressing. And we look around, why? And immediately then the thought process. If we watch out for that, we can change the thought which is about to come into something wholesome immediately and never allow the mind to go into the unwholesome process. It's not easy. It is much easier, of course, to see the unwholesome thought, not believe it, and change it. Now, our labeling during the meditation is a practice for that. Because here, we substitute every thought, every thought that we can catch, with attention on the breath. The same substitution process takes place when we label in daily life and say, uh-huh, unwholesome. I can substitute with something wholesome. So the better we are at the labeling in meditation, the better we'll be at labeling in daily life. The more we realize that thoughts are just thoughts, and do not need our support system of reaction, but can be changed, substituted with something which is useful. As the more we do that in meditation, the easier it is in daily life. The other way around, of course, too. Do it in daily life, it becomes easier in meditation, but it doesn't work that way. We have to learn it in meditation and have to do it in meditation over and over again. 
and then it becomes habitual and we don't allow ourselves the negativity. This does not mean that we can no longer discriminate between that which is good and that which is bad. If that were the case, we wouldn't ourselves be able to act in a good way if we can't discriminate. It does not mean a lack of discrimination. It just means a lack of negativity, of dislike and rejection, of um, hate, of fear, of pride, of jealousy, of envy. It just means that we don't lose our discriminating ability. Our meditation, if it doesn't make it possible for us to change our thought processes in daily living, we've meditated for nothing. The thought processes are very much habitual. And if you've labeled, you may have found a habitual pattern of thoughts which keep coming. Now, this habitual pattern, like making ruts in a wet driveway with a heavy truck, the deeper the ruts, the more difficult it is to get that heavy truck out of those ruts. The more often we think negatively, the deeper the ruts, the easier it is to fall into those ruts again. The more difficult it is to get out and think differently. In that respect, the longer we've done it, the harder it is to change. But change is a human condition. And if we don't take advantage of it, but only take that part of it which is decay and death, then we're losing out. Change is also in the other direction, the inner change. The first step, therefore, is to recognize in meditation that there's no need to believe any of that thinking that's going on. The second step is to be able to label quickly so that in daily life we don't have that instinctive, impulsive reaction but are able to see ourselves clearly as we're thinking and make our wholesome thought which has not yet arisen arise and make it continue. Now, wholesome thoughts are those which create peacefulness, inner contentment. They are not turning ourselves away from that which is happening, recognizing it, recognizing it as based in ignorance. There's no need to be destructive or aggressive or disliking ignorance. 
it just is. We've all got it. It's part and parcel of being human. So if we can see that in ourselves, our own reactions, we can see our own, through the labeling, we can see where the negativities hurt ourselves and substitute. We're using something which is called the four supreme efforts because it is supremely beneficial but also supremely difficult. And the better we become at it, the easier our life is. When there is negativity in the mind, it depletes mental energy. It can become so strong that one can just barely do what's necessary to stay alive. To live life for survival is foolish. Nobody's going to make it. Nobody ever has and nobody ever will. There's got to be more to it than that. Negative thinking depletes energy in the mind to such an extent that sometimes even survival becomes difficult. The positive part of our thoughts is not supposed to be fantasy. It's not supposed to be flattery. It's not supposed to be seeing everything through rose-colored glasses. That would be equally foolish. Seeing it as it is, it's difficult to be a human being. It's difficult, even more difficult, to be a good human being. And everybody has the same difficulty. There's absolutely no reason and no sense in being angry about it, aggressive, disliking, distraught, fearful. It just is. Now, our meditation practice, while giving us some calm, can also give us quite a lot of that insight. For instance, if we watch the breath and seeing it as impermanent, we can see that the movement of the breath means that we are alive, but it also means that we are nearer and nearer to death. Each breath brings us nearer to our death. So, if we can keep that in mind <coughs> once a day, the daily recollection, we will find different priorities in life. The priorities will be spiritual growth, inner contentment, inner peace, inner joy, independent of outer conditions. And if those are our priorities, we will realize that negative thinking is totally against those priorities. It doesn't help us at all. Now, obviously, everybody thinks never negatively at some time or other. The greatest mistake we can make, though, 
is to believe it. If we believe it, we're found. Because we're going to act upon it. And if we act upon it, we hurt ourselves. We usually don't hurt anybody else. We usually hurt ourselves. And that's that whole business of karma making. What we do goes as a result. We make karma through thought, speech, and action. These are our three doors. Thought, speech, and action. That's all we have. There is nothing else how we can manifest our karma. And thought is, of course, the first one. Thought is that which makes it all happen. Then we may say something about it, or we may act upon it. But first, it's a thought. So that's the most important one to watch. Here, in the quiet of a retreat, we have a good chance of becoming aware of our thinking processes. How they are often fantasy, often distracted, but also often negative. And every time we notice that outside of meditation, to bring them back, to just bear attention to what's going on. Now, mindfulness, which I started talking about last night and only explained the first foundation, has four aspects. And this is the third and the fourth one. I haven't paid attention to the second one yet. I'll come to that later. The third and the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The third one is the thinking process. What am I thinking? How is this thinking process going on? A very good chance to find out through the labeling. And the fourth one, the content. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Does it concern any of the hindrances, the taints? Or is it something wholesome which I can continue thinking? The third one, when we become aware of the thinking in the meditation, for instance, and then label, we don't have to discriminate between wholesome and unwholesome. That's the third foundation. We just know we're thinking, we're giving it a name. But in daily life, we need both, the third and the fourth one. We have to know we're thinking giving it a label, and then recognizing whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. Sometimes people are not quite sure what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Sometimes they wonder whether everything that's negative is really unwholesome. The Buddha gave direct guidelines on that, which are extensive and as we go along, we may discuss some of them, probably not all of them. One which is important to remember is unwholesome. Concerns 
what are called the five hindrances. And I'll talk about those in more detail. I'll just give them names now. The first one is sensual desire. second one is ill will. Anything that's negative as far as being angry, hateful, rejecting, resisting. Fear also belongs to that. The third one is called floss and torpor, which is torpors in the mind, laziness and drowsiness. When we don't have enough mental energy to build within us a growth process. The fourth one is called restlessness and worry. If we worry, we're victims. And restlessness is also making us a victim that we can't really attend to what's going on inside. And the last one is called skeptical doubt. Skepticism, which doesn't allow us to give ourselves to anything. Now I'll talk about those five in far more detail because they are the outcome of those three taints. The three taints are our base, so to say, the foundation on which those five hindrances rest. And our change process is possible if we become aware. So the mindfulness of the thought and the content of thought will make that possible. Recognition, no blame, change. There is no blame attached to any of this. This is what human beings are all about. We sometimes feel we ought to be different. We ought to be better. We shouldn't do this or should do that. And that kind of reaction to ourselves breeds a great deal of discontent and doesn't accomplish a thing. The thing that really accomplishes something is bare attention and substitution. The more one meditates, the more natural is substitution. Because if I don't want to think in meditation, I have to substitute with the meditation subject. Otherwise, I'll sit here thinking for this whole week. And that's not the purpose of the exercise. So the more one does that, the more practice one becomes in the substitution, the easier it is. And having done it once or twice, having substituted, a wholesome thought for an unwholesome one. One becomes aware of the relief. And it breeds self-confidence that one can do it. And one doesn't have to be a victim to one's own emotions.
self-confidence is, first of all, created in the meditation process, of course. Every time we substitute a thought with the attention on the breath, we've been successful. Doing it often, you become confident it can be done. Staying on the breath makes us more confident. And if we do it in daily living and actually feel the ease which that creates, that we have been able to change our mind at will. We have a handle on our life. We're no longer necessary to be pushed around by what happens outside. We're totally in control of our thought process every time that we can change it at will. Naturally, only a fully enlightened one is always in control of the thought process. But the more often we do it, the easier it becomes to continue doing so. The purification process in meditation is automatic. That's why it has to be done. We cannot rely on trying to do it in daily living without the meditation. We can, we have to practice it in daily living also, of course. But it will never come to a completeness. Because this automatic purification that we get in meditation is absolutely necessary for practically everyone. Maybe there are some spiritual geniuses that don't need that, but they must be very rare. Because we are, if it's too difficult for us to watch our thoughts every single moment without having the foundation in meditation where we must do it, otherwise we don't meditate. In daily life, we don't feel that obligation. We just think anything. And we also are under the impression that these thoughts are secret. Nobody knows them which is another absurdity under which humanity operates. I spoke to a woman once who gives communication classes, also a sign of our times that we can't communicate, we've got to learn it. And she told me that only 7% of our communication is done through our words. The other 93% is done through body language, facial expression, tone of voice, and the whole feeling which comes through from the person. So if our thoughts are negative, angry, upset, disliking, rejecting, worrying, and we don't say a word, others will still know it. Somebody walks into a room who's angry, 
doesn't say a word, just sits down in a chair, picks up a newspaper. Everybody knows it. But if somebody walks into a room, very loving, kind, contented, peaceful, doesn't say a word, everybody knows it. So our thoughts are not stupid. We are polluting the environment with them. If we are interested in saving our environment, that's where we start. And everybody can do it. It's our thought processes which create our life. This is how we create. We are creators. And it's up to each one of us what we want to create. We're totally free to create whatever it is that we'd like. If we're thinking that we would like to create a palace with 50 rooms and golden fixtures, well, maybe we can't do that. But I have yet to hear of somebody who's happy with that kind of thing. But if we would like to create an environment in which we ourselves can live and the people that we are in contact with, which is peaceful, harmonious, which has joy in it, which has love in it, it's entirely up to us, each one of us. If we're waiting for somebody else to do it for us, we're waiting in vain. Each one of us can be that creator. And that is possibly one of the most important lessons we can learn through meditation. Because here on this little pillow, we're all sitting by ourselves. Nobody's doing a thing. All I'm doing is giving information, that's all. Everybody has to do their own meditation. So what are we creating on this little pillow for ourselves? There's nothing else happening. Nothing. So we've got to do it. And if that is taken in clearly, then we can take that with us into daily life. We're sitting in our little apartment, our house, or wherever we are, or trailer, and we're creating our environment around us through that, what goes on inside. The purification system that we all have within us, the facility to do it, has all the facets which we use in meditation. The mindfulness, the bare attention, the labeling, becoming aware of what we're thinking, and also the determination. Now, I'll just explain that last one because it's another purification aspect vitally connected to the meditation. I mentioned that our third hindrance is called sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor, or laziness and drowsiness, it sounds as if it's something which may not be pertinent to our lives, but it's pertinent to everybody. It's not only procrastination. 
that too. But it's a lack of excellence. And with excellence, I do not mean material excellence. It's a lack of trying to bring out the most important aspects of oneself which are the spiritual growth, the love aspect, the ability to be a real friend, to be a real helper, to be that which one sometimes think about, thinks about but doesn't really make the necessary effort. Plus and torpor is the opposite, of course, of effort. And right effort is the seventh, sorry, the sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. Without right effort, Samarayama, our whole life doesn't function. But right effort does not mean working from morning to night. And right effort does not mean making loads of money. And right effort does not mean having loads of friends. Right effort is spiritual excellence. And sometimes that is very much negated through the lack of self-confidence but most of the time it is not practiced because of the lack of realization of what is really important. Sitting down on the pillow and trying to become concentrated on the meditation subject counteract this third hindrance automatically. This very first step in sitting down, in Pali is called, not the sitting down, the watching the breath, the watching the meditation subject, vitaka. Vitaka means the initial application of the mind to the meditation subject. Now that takes effort. Of course, when the effort gets dispersed, then the mind starts thinking and dreaming. But it takes effort, and that's called right effort. That's samavayama, that's right effort. And this right effort is the antidote for this third hindrance. So you see that even just sitting down and trying to do it, it's already a purification system. The Buddha compared the third hindrance to being in prison. The mind is imprisoned. It's imprisoned by its own opinions, attitudes, viewpoints, and prejudices. It's imprisoned by its lack of expansion 
its lack of thinking in universal terms. It's imprisoned by looking only at the daily duties and responsibilities and forgetting the whole over the particulars. If we only look at those things that everybody has to do each day, we are imprisoned by that. That's why the Buddha compared it to being in prison. We can unlock that door very easily by looking at universal truth, such as the contemplation we did today, and others which we'll talk about. And also, by this effort of overcoming the sluggishness of the mind, every time we make that effort, we're counteracting that difficulty. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor also with a little pond which was quite muddy. If you look into a muddy pond, can't see your own likeness. So the muddiness of the sluggish mind, the mind that does not aim for spiritual excellence, but just wants to have comfort, mental and physical. Therefore, we have immediate benefit from the meditation, whether we can stay on the breath one second, two seconds, ten minutes, five minutes, two minutes, half an hour, whatever it may be. We counteract our third hindrance. We learn to realize that our thoughts are not believable, not reliable, but just come and go constantly. We learn to substitute. We learn to labor. And every single moment of concentration is one moment of purification. This purification process is, of course, absolutely essential to be done daily. We don't just wash once a week. We wash every day. We don't eat once a week. We eat every day. We're concerned with the health of the body. We should be. Absolutely. But what about the health of the mind? Our concern for that should be even greater. There's no other way to get to the bottom of truth then through this process. I'd like to give you some time to ask some questions if you have any at this moment and I think also can't remember any more than this.
any any questions on anything, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be this. Yes. Which one? Oh, certainly, <laughs> certainly okay. Um, were you thinking with the word inherit, uh, you're thinking about past lives? Yes. Um, don't make that a problem. Because, you see, as I said before, we can only live in this moment. And you can look on each day as if it was your whole life. Wake up in the morning, we're still, the day is young, we still feel quite energetic. And we make karma. Every moment that we're making a choice, we're making karma. And as we, the day goes older, we get also older, and we get more tired, and then we fall asleep, and we die a small death, because we don't know exactly what's happening at night. And we wake up the next morning to a new life, and we bring with us, the karma made the previous day. We bring it along. We can't just shed it. Now, if we got a result from it the previous day, that's fine. But if we didn't, we might get a result from it this day. So if we were most unkind to somebody the previous day, we might still feel badly about it the next day. So that's karma and it's resultant. And that's quite sufficient to look at it that way. To look at it as daily, or as we said, 10 years, that's fine too. But um, you don't have to go into that, um, as you say, taking it on faith that that came before, because it's totally impersonal. Karma is cause and effect. And the more we can see ourselves as being impermanent, just almost transparent because it's all moving along all the time the easier it is to see this business of former and future lives because it isn't us it's got nothing to do with us so the karma making in this life every day is the most important one that's by far the most important the other is speculation anyway isn't it maybe I was a Persian dancer huh <laughs> Anything else?
Yes. In daily life? Yes. Um, well, let's say somebody says something to you which is uh, you consider very unkind, right? And immediately the mind goes into disliking that person. So instead of going on with that dislike of that person, because that will can eventually result in a severance of the connection to that person, it will make you yourself unhappy because you're disliking this person very much, you're wondering why he or she is so unkind. Instead of going on with that, immediately you try to think of the difficulties that that person has because otherwise that person wouldn't be unkind. So instead of getting angry about the unkindness, you get some feeling of compassion for the difficulties of the other person. So you try to substitute with an understanding of that. Yes? Difficult. And the Buddha said like this. I'll give you the formula. If you know something that can be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If you know something that can be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If you know something that could be hurtful and is true, don't say it. If you know something that is helpful and true, find the right time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, what the whole thing's all about. <laughs> Self-inquiry. Mindfulness. Bear attention to what's going on inside of oneself. See, the more we know ourselves, the more we know everybody else. It's identical. It's no different. And as we can see in ourselves and overcome some of the facts in ourselves, we can also be helpful. But in actual fact, our environment is our mirror. What we see in other people is only that which what we have got. Otherwise we couldn't see it. Wouldn't be there to be seen. That's why we say, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. Because a Buddha knows what it's like to be a Buddha, so he can see when somebody else is a Buddha. But nobody else can, because we don't know what it's like. But we can see very easily when somebody's angry, because we know exactly what that looks like, feels like, sounds like. So our environment is our mirror. And we can see in that what we ourselves have. So, yes, if somebody is unkind and says unkind words, you can take it for granted that that person is very unhappy at that time. A happy person is not unkind. There's no reason to be unkind. So, one learns to have compassion. If one has found the right time to talk to the other person, well, that takes a bit of thought, the right time is considered to be when both people 
are willing to listen to each other, have time for each other, and when the one who wants to say something is full of love for the other person. Without that, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And earlier I thought I heard you say that we're responsible for our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't feel responsible. Can you say more about that? Yes. As long as we believe that we are me, we're making karma. And as long as we're making karma, we might as well understand that we are creating the causes and therefore getting the effect. There's nobody else involved, just ourselves. When we no longer believe in this me, then we don't make karma. So as an absolute truth, karma is impersonal and just cause and effect. But as a relative truth, each one of us has to deal with their own causes and effects. So we have, again have, so to say, two levels. One is the one we live on. This is me, and I've got to be responsible for what I do. And the other one is I'm trying to grow on the spiritual path to the point where that illusion will vanish one day. Is that clear? Yeah? Not quite, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, <laughs> that golden bolt from above, that type of thing. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, I would say that if you have the right guidelines, which means the understood experience, and keep on practicing diligently, regularly, with perseverance, even when it becomes difficult, yes, the clarity arises. It has to, because the mind becomes calm. But then, of course, the right, these are several ifs, so they have to be taken into consideration. Along the right guidelines, yes, no, it's not a bolt from the blue, it's, it's practice. And some people can do it faster and some can have slower. The Buddha said there are four different kinds of people. One lot practices with a lot of dukkha. Everybody know what dukkha is? No? Yes? No? Uh, everything that's unpleasant is dukkha. In fact, because everything changes, everything is connected with dukkha. 
So everything that's not fulfilling, that's unsatisfactory is dukkha. So some people practice with a lot of dukkha and it takes them a long time to have results. Another lot practices with a lot of dukkha but they have quick results. Then there are those that practice with a lot of sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, a lot of joy. And it takes them a long time to have results. And then there are those that practice with a lot of sukha and have very quick results. So hopefully we can be the last kind. Huh? <laughs> yes. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, the reading that you're mentioning is certainly health food for the mind. And health food for the mind is far more important than health food for the body. Don't misunderstand me, I'm all for health food for the body. But if that's all, then health food for the mind is more important. But it should be balanced. Where the reading brings the mind into the right direction, what you're reading is still the property of the person who's written it until you've actually practiced it yourself and then you can write about it yourself. So you do need to do both. If you read two hours, no, make it one and then one hour meditation. Because then that's what you've read. Put the mind in the right direction and then your meditation will bring that as your own Dhamma inside of you.